Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Have you ever been a victim of activist burnout? Certainly, there's a lot going on now that can use all of our adrenaline reserves and beyond, and still we'd be left feeling like things are spiraling down an endless sinkhole. So, without in any way denying the seriousness, the horrors, the dangers, and challenges that we see every day, is there a reason and a way to go on hoping and working for a better world? Today's guest, Betsy Roush Gilman, answers yes and yes. Betsy is a lifelong feminist and anti-capitalist, a Quaker and anarchist, and much more, and a person with sufficient experience and perspective to answer these questions with clarity and integrity, free of Pollyannish optimism. A couple months back, she arranged to present a session called Reasons for Hope, and I figured that all of my listeners could well use Betsy Rosh Gilman's answers, and that's why she joins us by phone from the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Betsy, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for the invitation, Mark. I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad that Bob Neckel connected me up with you. As you know, he's part of the Twin Cities Friends meeting, and he said that fairly recently you led a presentation for the Friends meeting there. Did they ask for that, or did you volunteer it, or how did this come about? Actually, I volunteered because I noticed or I heard in Meeting for Worship, I was hearing a string Sunday after Sunday of messages that indicated people were feeling kind of hopeless and desperate about the political situation in the country. And while it certainly is grim, I will not deny that at all. I just thought, you know, I don't feel hopeless, and I think I'd like to talk to people about why I don't. So I offered to do this forum as a, a way to say, you know, there's a different way of looking at the world. There's a different way of looking at political action, and this is what has guided me all my life. And did you provide the name Reasons for Hope? I think I said uh, sustaining an activist life or something along those lines, but I think they renamed it anyway. You've been a lifelong activist, I think. I mean, what can you remember your first conscious activism? Oh, yeah, I certainly can. In 1965, the Marines landed in Vietnam, and my mother took me to a demonstration. That was the first demonstration I'd gone to. There were a handful of us in Minneapolis marching around the armory in downtown Minneapolis. There were so few of us that we spaced ourselves out so that we'd walked two and two holding our signs and left a whole concrete block between us, a, a paving stone between us, so that we would look like there was more than 50 of us. So that was my first action. I think it's important to point out that while we think about the anti-Vietnam War movement, when we think of enormous crowds and the mobilization marches on Washington, where there are close to a million people present, that's not how it started out. It started out with little handfuls of people in places like Minneapolis, Minnesota, saying, wait a minute, what? There are Marines in Vietnam? Why? So that was my first demonstration. And how old were you at the point? I was in eighth grade, so I was 13 years old. And what was your reaction to that part of that experience? Evidently, it didn't dissuade you from going back. 
No, interestingly enough, I think my mother was a little afraid and she needed company. So my father at that moment was not against the war. So she asked me if I would like to come. And I think that that gave her a little bit of strength, just knowing she had somebody else there. So no, it did not discourage me. And I got involved in clergy and laity against the war in Vietnam fairly soon after that. Started doing things like going to the state fair and sitting at a table where we handed out information about the Vietnam War and got signatures from passersby who would sign our petition against the war or send postcards to their representatives or something like that. So I became involved in clergy and laity concerned about the war in Vietnam. My mother was on the board of the American Friends Service Committee office locally in the Twin Cities. So I was able to get supplied with lots and lots of anti-war propaganda. I spent my ninth grade year arguing with my social studies teacher all year long (laughs) about the war. (laughs) He was enlisted the National Guard at the time, so he was serving the National Guard on weekends. He loved to tease me. He had a record player in the classroom and after school when I was staying to work on the newspaper with him. He'd play military songs from World War One, mainly over there, <laughs> over there. And George Cohen, that's the musician I was trying to think of. So I spent the entire year in ninth grade arguing with my social studies teacher, and this is another important lesson I learned there, that at the end, he was never convinced. Well, at least not while I was in his classroom. He didn't show any signs of being convinced or having second thoughts. But at the end of the year, one of my classmates said to me, you know, having listened to you argue about this all year long, I think I agree with you. <laughs> and, and I realized then, that, and this is an important piece of why I feel not hopeless about social change, that it isn't the people who are most diametrically opposed to me, their opinions, who are going to be convinced. It's the people listening to the arguments whose minds may change. And so to me, while I try to do the best I can to have cogent and important arguments at the ready, but it's the people in the middle, the people who haven't quite made up their minds yet. That's my real audience. And I learned that in ninth grade because Becky Francis was convinced by my arguments against the war. So I don't know a whole lot about you, Betsy, kind of surprisingly, considering how much I travel around in the Quakers in Minnesota and Wisconsin. But I certainly know Richard Fuller, your partner, very well. We spent a lot of time at the Northern Yearly Meeting gatherings when I fast for the three days and he joins me at the Juice Fast. So I have a real sense of his spiritual depth. I believe your family, I mean, you already mentioned your mother was on the AFSC, the American Friends service committee. She was involved with them there in the Twin Cities. Were you Quaker growing up? And you said your father wasn't against the war, and I find that kind of unusual for Quakers. Yeah, my parents, well, my father never was a Quaker. He was, however, well, my parents met in Philadelphia at a kind of Quaker-associated cooperative house right after the Second World War ended. My father was a CO in the Second World War, so he was finishing up his conscientious objector service in Philadelphia at the time. And my mother had come to Philadelphia to go to graduate school. So they met in the context of Quakers, and then their first early in their marriage, they went to Mexico on behalf of the American Friends Service Committee to head a service camp, which was outside of Mexico City, Cuernavaca, Mexico. So they headed that camp for, I think, maybe eight or nine months, and then I was on the way already. They got pregnant, and I was on the way, so they moved back to the Twin Cities before I was born. 
but growing up, there was no meeting in St. Paul. And the distance between St. Paul and Minneapolis was a great deal longer than then than it is today. Although there was a meeting in Minneapolis, my parents didn't want to make the schlep every Sunday. So they enrolled me in the Unitarian Church. So I grew up going to Unitarian Church School. And that worked for you. Evidently, by eighth grade, you're very happy to be anti-war. I mean, Unitarians pretty widely have that disposition, I think, as well. No, well, I don't know. There's certainly the particular church I went to was very liberal at the time. The Unitarians did a wonderful thing for me, though. The youth program involved going around and visiting. I think it was we were in ninth grade or tenth grade, probably tenth grade. We visited other congregations, other denominations, and you know we'd study about up on them, and then we'd go to a service. They took me to a Quaker service. I sat there in worship for an hour, and I thought, okay, this is me. I'm getting off here. And so <laughs> that was really was my conversion experience, if you can call it that. But I just felt the silent worship was really what I was after. That's what I wanted, the time to reflect, the time to be open to what I could hear of the message of God to come through to me in that kind of quiet, reflective way. I think that over the years, of course, my appreciation for Quakers and the, for silent worship has really deepened so that I think of it as being, well, I, I like the word worship rather than a service or something like that, because I think it really is a challenge to me to use an hour of out of my week to worship God. I like the idea of an hour where I'm worshiping the bigger powers in the world and the bigger powers in my life. By the way, Betsy, we had that experience just this past January at Eau Claire Friends where three adults came with several middle school students from the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship here. One of the adults found it so compelling that she became a regular part of our group. Uh, So it's not unusual, I suppose. But there's something I wanted to ask you right away. You do not seem to me to be an introverted person. I happen to be a real terminal extrovert. But I find most of the people who gravitate to Quaker meetings, in spite of our activism and in spite of the ways in which we reach out to the world about important issues, that there is a preponderance, I guess I'd say at least, of introverts. For them, I think, let's sit down and be quiet, maybe is more natural than for me. Yeah. So am I seeing your personality correct? Or what drew you or didn't? Well, on the Myers-Briggs test, I'm right on the line between introvert and extrovert. So I get charged up in both directions, and I also can't sustain either one of them forever and ever. I have to switch back to the other side, too. What I'd like to do as we talk with Betsy Rosh Gilman, I want to have her share some of the materials that she gave as part of what was entitled Reasons for Hope presentation at the Twin Cities Friends meeting. How long did you take for this presentation, Betsy? It was about an hour. And we've got a little bit less than that, but we don't have to do everything. I read some notes that you sent me about the presentation. I wasn't there. And I particularly liked the chart of different kinds of activism, because I think so many people think that activism is really limited. You know, it's either you're writing to politicians for them to do something, or you're throwing stones at a demonstration. You know, it's kind Mm -hmm. of only those two things. And I'd like you to go through really the full list. And I would like our listeners here for Spirit in Action to 
identify with, yeah, I've done that, yeah, I'm doing that now, that I want to do, or that doesn't fit for me, as you go through them. And any kind of examples, anything to make it concrete would be appreciated, Betsy. So could you go through that list? Okay, sure. And this is in no particular order. (laughs) Getting elected or getting appointed to some influential position, I think people often feel like that's the way that they can really affect change. And I really honor people who especially go to the extent of trying to run an electoral campaign. It's an exhausting and demanding thing to do. And then there's also teaching, training. There are a few of us nationwide, worldwide, who really identify ourselves as trainers in social change skills. So we try to do things that pass the lessons of the past along, try to kind of pull out the skills that really are successful or movements need in order to be successful and kind of help people to accentuate and learn those skills and accentuate the ones that they have already. Alternative economic institutions such as co-ops, food co-ops or housing co-ops, credit unions, revolving loan funds, and now I think uh, more and more reparations projects, reparations for slavery and for genocide against Native Americans. Those are alternative economic institutions are a, a real part of the whole social change picture, both consuming things produced it there or sold there and also working there and making sure that the institutions stay alive. Cultural work, writing, music, performance, visual arts, that kind of thing, things that are inspirational, that convey a message in a non-wordy way, things that make us laugh or reflect or feel sad. Cultural work is a very important piece of social change. Examining our own racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, whether that's internalized because that's part of our identities or because we're thinking that we aren't affected by racism, but we all are. And working on the intersections of these things where racism and sexism cross paths or whatever really kind of examining ourselves and trying to get away from the letting those learned habits that are so destructive run our lives. And that is kind of related to personal growth on conducting conflict, conscientious parenting, healing from abuse, maintaining mental health. This is all a very important piece of what makes us able to sustain activism. And, you know, healing from abuse is a big piece, especially a lot for women. Healing from early childhood sexual abuse, for instance, is a real piece of what makes us powerful actors in the world. Obviously, I'm in favor of developing spiritual grounding and practices that support our activism. It's not, you know, unrelated to how we can be strong people in the world and making waves. Fostering community. There's that lovely poster from the Syracuse Cultural Workers about what builds community, how to build community. And it's all sorts of very ordinary actions. But fostering community in neighborhoods, households, schools, etc. And particularly for me, because I do identify as an anarchist, that attention to self-government. Because in order to really achieve democracy and the most direct forms of democracy, we have to be ready to govern ourselves. We have to be ready to say, oh yeah, I could pitch in on that, or 
oh, I have an opinion about that, and I'd like it to be heard. So that community is a piece of how we govern ourselves and building community. Quaker Meeting is a great example that we don't have an authority figure to tell us what we are doing other than God, and that in community we decide how we are together and what we're doing next. Self-government is a big piece and the skills it takes to do that. Obviously, working within a political party, no-brainer, yeah. Uh, Lobbying for legislation and regulations, pressuring public officials. All of us do a little bit of that, maybe. Organizing pressure groups, labor unions, neighborhood groups, national peace and justice organizations. So pressure groups that can, can pull more of us together. And as you said, also protesting in the streets, risking arrest, going to trial. That's one form of social activism. I personally think that raising children with good values is a a form of social activism. Raising children who will be strong and powerful actors in the world, children who will care about what happens to the earth and what happens to one with one another. And then there's, you know, some little things that well, little and not so little things that we can do around military tax resistance, for instance, not paying income tax that goes to support the war machine. Lawsuits, legal actions, a lot of people pursue the legal strategy in order to make a change, and sometimes it's really helpful. Sometimes it it works. Careful consumer choices, responsible investment, observing boycotts, lowering our own carbon footprints, taking immediate personal actions where we can. And then the thing that I think ties a lot of these things together are sustained campaigns. Sustained campaigns are movements over a period of time where the people may piece a whole bunch of these pieces together in order to achieve a big outcome. And I think that for campaigning, it is really important for us to realize that all of those things that I've just mentioned are legitimate pieces of action and not to get too caught up on, you know, like, my way or my preferred methods, my tactics are really the ones that are going to make the difference. It's actually a conglomeration of a whole bunch of tactics and a whole bunch of things that makes a difference. And you just listed some 17 different groups. I mean, some of them include multiple different types of activism in there. And I would be surprised if most of our listeners to Spirit in Action aren't doing a number of them. And I I hope, folks, as you were listening, you could say, oh, yeah, I've done that one. Well, maybe not that one. I'm not called to that. Or I used to do that 20 years ago. Or next year, I think I'm ready for that one. Of these 17 different groups, do you have some sense of how many you've participated in? (laughs) Practically all of them except for the first. (laughs) And actually, I had that clarity too. The first one, getting elected or appointed to an influential position. I have not actually participated in one of the last ones, lawsuits and legal actions. Uh, So maybe there's two out of the 17 that I haven't directly participated in. Any of them that you participated in over the years that on retrospect, you'd say, eh, really, I could have passed on that. I really didn't need to do that. It wasn't that important in terms of my time. Or do you feel clear at this point in your life? And I mean, you've had a lot of decades of activism. Are there any of them that you would have skipped with your current wisdom? 
That's a good question. I think I'm the least patient with lobbying for legislation and regulations, pressuring public officials. I have the least patience with that. And so it's easy for me to say, what a waste of time. However, I'm not sure that it is totally a waste of time. I mean, you know, it's not my preferred method, but uh, I wouldn't say that anything that I've done or of those ways of making change that I would feel is really a waste of time or has wasted my time. You know, I, I've spoken to George Lakey. In fact, I interviewed him just a couple weeks ago uh, remotely. He was in Philadelphia. I was at Grinnell College for the Friends General Conference gathering, but we had him in video-wise to be interviewed. And he, of course, is founder of Training for Change, mm-hmm. which I know you've been involved with. It is so important for people to recognize that just sending the postcard off to the legislator is not the same as getting things done, and that, in fact, there could be a much more valuable form of advocacy that you could be doing in in that case, too. But anyway, I appreciate so much the insights that Training for Change, and folks, the website, trainingforchange.org, is on nordenspiritradio.org, and it's well worth consulting. Of the things that you've done, have you felt, Betsy, that any one of them stands out as, this is really the high point of my activism, this is the one that seems to have been most fruitful? I think that the years that I spent with Training for Change, doing workshops and training people to improve their skills for action and their skills as trainers themselves, that those were some of the best years that I've put in. And I think that Training for Change... The philosophy we have is one of direct education, centering ourselves on the participants' experiences and the participants' knowledge so that it's not like what Paolo Freire called the banking model of education, but rather ways to bring out what people already know and to help them identify, oh, ha, I didn't realize if I did this, it would have this consequence. Is that the consequence I want? So that's the kind of training that we did, and I was involved in training for change well from 1991 until, I think, let's see now, it was almost, I think it was 2017 when I finally said, okay, that's it. But training, the satisfaction of doing a good workshop is really, it's right up there. <laughs> a couple of times when I you know, was able to tell that I really made a difference to people's lives. So that's very satisfying. And I think of particularly one demonstration that I did the um, nonviolent direct action training for a number of globalization mobilizations, but one in particular in Miami. 2005, I believe, that was a protest against the uh, free trade agreement of the Americas. In fact, that was uh, that is a good story. But the story I was about to tell you is that I led a grounding exercise at the beginning for groups of people who are coming in and preparing themselves to go out on the streets in a couple of days. And I led a grounding exercise to try to help people sort of connect to what it was most important and why they were there, kind of helping them really center in their purpose and intention. 
And the demonstrations were pretty wild. The police were pretty out of control. And uh, masses of police tried to control the demonstrators. And I ran into a young woman who had come to my workshop and uh, later on, and maybe it was even on the way home. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you gave us that grounding exercise because that was really, really helpful for me when I wasn't at all sure what the police were up to or what was going to happen to me next to be able to ground myself in my purpose, my intention, and the sources of strength I feel from the earth and the people around me. That was really helpful for me. So, you know, those kinds of experiences that really feel like, yeah, all right, great. I have made a difference for folks' lives. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. First, I want to remind folks that we are here today for Spirit in Action with Betsy Rosh Gilman. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. All 14 years of our programs are available there on the website. You can get links. So when you want to track down Training for Change, for example, trainingforchange.org, it's on our website. And a lot more information, the 40-some stations nationwide where we're carried across the country. You'll find a wealth of information there. You'll find a place where you can post comments to make our communication two-way. There's a donate button. This is full-time work, and it's sustained not by government and not by corporations, but by you, the listener. Even more important, though, than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support your local community radio station, the other forms of media locally, who are so vital to informing and motivating and enriching our lives. Local news is where it's at, so please start out by supporting your community radio station. Again, we're talking with Betsy Rosh Gilman. She's in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, has been active there for decades. And I want to talk to you, Betsy, about some of the specifics of that. But just now, when you, you mentioned uh, the woman who was so appreciative of the grounding exercise, and one of the 17 items that you listed before was developing spiritual grounding practice that support activism. What does that mean to you? I think spirituality means something very different to many people, but in your lexicon, what is spirituality and spiritual grounding? Oh, golly, that's a huge question. (laughs) Sure, we've only got another half an hour. (laughs) I think that I would define spiritual grounding as being able to access the things that are larger than me, that the powers of the universe, if you know, to steer away from God language exactly, but the powers of the universe that are larger than me and that are influencing my life and the lives of others around me more than I am aware of on a daily basis. So that to take spiritual grounding to me is to take a little time to just open myself up to the influence of the positive powers in the universe that are sustaining me and that are around me and that I might be able to put myself better in alignment with them so as to be a more powerful actor in the world. I'm a a big fan of a theologian named Carter Hayward who talks about embodiment. She's in the Christian tradition and she talks about embodiment very much that we are God's hands in the world. We are God's mouths 
in the world. We are God's eyes. We are God's heart. We are God-ing in the world. And that's what I think when I stop for a moment of spiritual grounding, that's what that's what I try to do is put myself in alignment with the power that's there behind me and around me and underneath me and through me and act from that place of power. Mm. And more power to you, because the kinds of things that you've aimed at are certainly items near and dear to my own heart. One of the items of the 17 you listed was protesting in the streets, risking arrest, going to trial, that kind of thing. So protesting in the streets, I mean, that could be carrying a sign. It could be something more vociferous. I think with the Republican National Convention in the Twin Cities, uh, you were part of the welcoming committee. I, but by the way, it was welcoming in quotes. Yes, it was. Yeah. That was a wry name because it was actually a group of anti-authoritarian and anarchist activists who said, welcoming right. And we were organizing the protests against the Republican National Committee. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about that interaction? Now, that's, and to some degrees, that got pretty heated, pretty scary for some people, I'm sure. It did. It did, yep. Also energizing on another level, I suppose. So could you tell me about what your role was with respect to that, what you saw that you thought was good, helpful, pursuing activism, and what wasn't? You know, I would rather talk about the globalization mobilizations that I was a part of, if that's all right with you. Sure, of course. But tell me why, because I can imagine reasons, but I would like to know why that direction, and so I can affirm it. Okay. The protests of the Republican National Convention were a one-off thing. In some ways, my feeling was, had it not been happening uh, literally in my town, I probably would not, I would not have gone anywhere to be part of this action. And I certainly wouldn't have put an, a year and a half of my life into trying to plan the thing. <laughs> but it was a one-off action. And to some extent, it's sort of like, okay, so we don't like Republicans. Okay, so now what? And it seemed to me, I always felt like it was just, it was not part of a campaign. It was not part of something that would really would yield any results. So that's why I don't feel like that was like a high point of my activism. The globalization mobilizations, on the other hand, I was invited to be part of the group of trainers for the WTO protest or the protest of the WTO meetings in Seattle, Washington in 1999. A contact of mine from years of activism said, you know, this thing is going to be really big and we need some help out here in doing some preparations for nonviolent action. And I had been doing trainings to prepare groups for nonviolent action for years by that time. So I said, kind of all innocent, I said, sure, I'll go out and help. And I went out to Washington State with a colleague from Training for Change, actually, Matt Gwynn. He and I went out together as a team to prepare people for the protests of the WTO meetings. And then we stayed through most of the protests, didn't just leave. It was a huge game changer, a real watershed moment. It was the rebirth of the anarchist movement in the United States, heavily influenced by the anarchist philosophy and by anarchist practices of self-government. It was a very decentralized protest, and it was effective. I mean, I had been blocking doorways in a symbolic fashion for years. I'd been trying to 
get the local arms manufacturer to give up manufacturing arms by going out every six months or so and blockading the doorway for a few hours to keep the workers out. And it was a symbolic kind of action. But this was <laughs> this was a blockade that actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> and we were in the streets for three solid days and part of a fourth. And we actually made the streets impassable so that the delegates could not get to the convention center where the convention was being held. They couldn't get out of their hotels. We prevented the meetings from going on. They were supposed to come out with a communique. They couldn't do that at the end of it. And it was a massive, massive amount of people with way different ideas and agendas and issues, all of which had to do with the so-called free trade agenda of the Clinton administration. So it was huge. It was a real game changer. And then there were a number of other globalization mobilizations. And this is a good example of how a campaign works, that for the United States, uh, the protest in Seattle was a trigger moment for the anti-globalization agenda. We then built on that with a number of other mobilizations around the world and around the United States that also protested global trade talks. It moved away from the WTO, which was really crippled by the, the failure of the talks in Seattle. We then focused on the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in Washington, D.C. the following spring. We focused on the Transatlantic Business Dialogue, which was where corporations and government officials meet to set agenda. They met in Cincinnati the following fall, and we protested that. We followed them to um, Cancun, and then there were a number of regional trade pacts. The North American Free Trade Agreement had been signed way back when the failure and the consequences of what the North American Free Trade Movement was doing to the union movement, to family farms, to the environmental movement, that was what really galvanized us to continue to oppose more trade agreements. So then in uh, Quebec City, in I think it was 2003, we focused on the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, which was being negotiated in secret by the Canadian government, the U.S. government, and the Mexican government. And the South American governments generally, there were, it was supposed to be a free trade agreement that would cover from the tip of Patagonia up to Hudson Bay. This would be one big free trade area. And we, in Quebec, we began to, and Montreal, we started to really focus in on that as a very secretive and really harmful treaty that was under negotiation followed. They had a subsequent meeting to continue working on the FTAA in Cancun, and the anti-globalization movement followed them there. And then in Miami in 2005, as I mentioned, I was there in Miami, and that was pretty much in the death knell for the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas. Miami was a very – I learned a lot by being there. The police presence, as I said, was really overwhelmingly strong. But we had enough connections with people who were not the top-level negotiators, but the negotiators working on the Free Trade Agreement who were at the sort of second level, actually the people who were – 
working out all the details, hammering things out so that there could be a signature on the document at the end of the conference in Miami that year. Some of the people who were doing that came out of their negotiations and spoke to a group of us protesters on the eve of the big march. This was organized somewhat by the American Friends Service Committee along with some other large groups that had connections with the more, I don't know, kind of were more insider game organizations. And the representatives from the countries of Brazil and Venezuela and Ecuador came and talked with us about the negotiations, about what was being hammered out inside the hotels where we couldn't get access. And they said, what you're doing is incredibly important. Keep it up. The street heat that you folks are generating out here is what's giving the Caribbean Basin nations the backbone to stand up to the United States because they are very vulnerable. Our three countries that we represent, we're stronger, we're more able to stand up to the United States. But the Caribbean countries, they do not want what is being proposed for the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, but they cannot really resist the power of the United States because they're so dependent and so interwoven with the United States. So keep it up. You are able to give them some background to resist. So that was a great learning experience to hear directly from the people who were inside the convention center and working on these documents in part of the discussions that we were not being ignored in any way, shape, or form. And that while we felt sort of silly being out, I felt sort of silly being out there in the streets, which were deserted, Miami had completely shut down for this protest and for the duration of the convention. So it was just the only people in the streets were the demonstrators and the police forces. But so it felt sort of silly because we weren't actually able to stop this negotiation from going on. However, we were having a big effect anyway. And we, I felt really privileged to know that, that what we were doing mattered a huge amount. I have to say also about the globalization mobilizations, and again, this gets back to my long list of different ways of being active and the ways that those kinds of tactics play off each other. At each globalization mobilization I went to, there was also a track of kind of workshops. It wasn't just people in the streets marching and chanting and vigiling and protesting and confronting the police and being chased by the police. And it wasn't just that. It was also people in their own hotel rooms talking with one another and saying, okay, so this is how trade is affecting your family farms, and this is how it's affecting how we're trying to unionize the meatpacking industry. We have common cause here. The free trade agreements and the free trade agenda is hitting all of us hard. So there were alliances being formed and information being exchanged kind of behind the scenes, not in the streets, but in some hotel rooms, in some union halls, in church basements, to make the movement stronger so that when we all went home, that was not the end of the movement. The connections were made and then labor unions taking some of their members who are being cut out of jobs by maquiladoras in uh, Mexico and Honduras and in the Southern Hemisphere, 
taking labor union members to the maquiladoras to talk to the workers there and bringing maquiladora workers to the United States to see what was happening to workers in the United States. And doing those kinds of connections and the networks were established partly at these big globalization mobilization actions so that the press and the attention went to what was happening in the streets, but there was a heck of a lot happening behind closed doors for us that really helped us to build a movement that could be sustained then through the next six months until the next trade agenda was being negotiated and the protesters showed up again. This is how a movement works. It isn't all the flashy in the street stuff. It's also the behind the scenes connections and the month to month, year to year cultivating of connections and comparing of harm and helping each other out and having each other's backs. That's what really makes a movement successful. And that's what we're talking to Betsy Rush Gilman about today for Spirit in Action. She gave a presentation to the Twin Cities Friends meeting, Reasons for Hope. And I want to get to that pretty directly, Betsy, except that I want to ask one more thing. When you gave your list of 17 different kinds of activism, mm-hmm. I'm also thinking, you know, you're, you're presenting this in terms of how we nurture activism that sustains, that carries on. And what you just talked about with the globalization and mobilization was a really good example of something long-term that had a major effect. I think that there's also been movements which have been flash in the pan, which have not been sustained, which crashed and burned, which had limited effect. And in some ways, they're doing something different than what you're advocating in terms of the reasons for hope. Can you talk about any of those that you maybe were part of or that at least you were a close witness to? I think, actually, because I take such a long view of things, I'm not sure that I can put my finger on something that really was not important. For instance, to to take an example, Occupy, the Occupy movement. I think that one of the things about that, it was a flash in the pan. It was very much on everybody's minds for a while and was talked about quite a lot in the media. Many people participated. And in the Twin Cities, I was thrilled with how many people I didn't know who participated in the Occupy movement. It was really refreshing to see some new faces. Some people did get way burned out by that. And I think that part of the reason is that in the confusion between a tactic and a campaign, that Occupy was a whirlwind. It was a tactical thing to go out and occupy Wall Street, occupy the plaza in front of the federal government building in Minneapolis or other places. And then it kind of changed so that at least in the Twin Cities, we were occupying homes that were on the edge of foreclosure so that it became more specific to helping people stay in their homes. I believe that that was not a waste and that the language that Occupy put on the map is still in use today. The concept of the 1% and the 99% is very much part of our thinking today. And that it was part of what I would call the economic justice movement. It was one tactic. It was one particular time. It was one event in that movement. And the movement is still alive. So I think that I take the longer view and 
it is true that a lot of people walked away from Occupy feeling discouraged and sort of like, God, with David and all, and that still wasn't enough. What, what on earth do we need? It's hopeless. It's hopeless unless you take the longer-term view of things and to recognize that as unorganized as that was and as spontaneous, and it was still it was a tremendous learning experience, and it made a big difference in how we think about doing action since. I still, I was just at a, uh, someplace the other day, oh, yeah, I was at a, a rally to support immigrants, and there was no bullhorn. And so somebody said, mic check, and we all quieted <laughs> down so that we could hear somebody who wasn't speaking with a microphone. And people started repeating what the speaker said so that people on the outskirts of the crowd could hear what was going on. That was from Occupy. So we know things because of having experimented. We know things because of having analysis. We're able to say, this is a problem of the 99% versus the 1%. That's a big gain to be able to be that clear in our analysis. Now, the 99% of us are divided about hundreds of ways from Sunday by things like classism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, all of those things. We are divided, but if we could get over some of those divisions, the more we can get over those divisions, the more we can find common cause and figure out ways to work together, the more powerful we are because we are 99%. That is true. So it's hard for me to come up with an example of – I can certainly come up with examples of people feeling discouraged and burned out. And that's useful to know about. I mean, it's useful when you've seen it, because part of what you're talking about, reasons for hope, you're talking about what sustains you, what allows you to continue in hope instead of going down the burned out direction. That's right. So what have you seen about people being burned out? I believe that in addition to all these different ways of being activists, which I've given you, I believe that there are also particular roles that activists play. There are four particular roles, and that we kind of by personality and by druthers and maybe by experience or whatever, we tend to gravitate towards one or two of those roles. There are people who take citizen actions, who try to make the system work. So, for instance, the lawsuits and the legal actions or getting appointed to a board or lobbying your legislature, doing petitions to get the system to work. That's a citizen-style action, and I really respect folks who do that. Occasionally it works, and more often it doesn't, and they need the rest of us. <laughs> There's a group of people who are more characterologically uh, inclined to be rebels and to say, hey, no, wait a second, no, that cannot go on. We cannot continue to imprison children in cages at the border. That's wrong. And to try to end things right now, because things are happening right now, we've got to put an end to them. That's the energy that gave rise to Occupy, and that I call it a rebel energy. And the rebels' rebellion is only good for about a year and a half. After about a year and a half, you burn out, unless you can supplement it with something else. And the other two re remaining roles I'd like to point at are social change agent, someone who, like myself, goes from movement to movement to movement to movement, and someone who does try to spread the skills and build on the skills that are developed in one movement and apply them in another another context, and someone who works on those oppression issues to keep a, a dividing us and make it easy for the corporate powers to 
keep us from working together. So the social change agent. And then the final role, which I never have played, but the reformer. Because when we get to a certain point and we do have a victory, somebody has to work within the system to make sure that it actually gets implemented. And that's the reformer role. My aunt was a good example of that during the 1960s. Of course, the Civil Rights Act was passed. I believe it was 1965. Then somebody had to be in government to make sure that the law was written and passed, but then there are regulations to follow the law, and agencies have to take what was legislated and the money that they were given and develop their programs, and they have to be guided by the law, and they have to be guided by the regulations and rules that are written from the law. That's what my aunt did. She worked in the uh, Department of Education to make sure that the laws that said schools cannot discriminate against students of color, that those laws got implemented and that there were reforms carried out by the government because the story does not end with just getting the law passed. Somebody has to take it home. Somebody has to make sure that it really gets implemented. So my aunt was a reformer. Um, She worked within the Department of Education to make sure that that happened. Now, I mentioned that the rebel energy is very hard to sustain for very long, and that's the the group that tends to go through those dramatic flare-ups and flare-outs. As I say, it's possible I really like the rebel energy, and I'm, I'm very much there, very often really out there shouting on the streets because I like that rebel energy. I, I feel it strongly in myself. However, I temper it with the social change agent energy too, the take the long view, the person who's going to try to connect things and make sure that we aren't always reinventing the wheel. Wow, that's quite an amazing breadth of activism that we've covered, Betsy. I want to remind folks we've been speaking with Betsy Rosh Gilman in the Twin Cities, longtime activist, many decades of activism, including with Movement for a New Society, Training for Change. She's been active internally, externally with co-ops, with every form of change that she could get her hands on. (laughs) And I think it's so fortunate that Bob Neckel called you to my attention so I could share your reasons for hope. And I hope that people come out of listening to Spirit in Action each week with another sense of hope. It's pretty easy to go into doom and gloom and say, look at this bad thing, look at this bad thing, look at this bad thing. Not that they should be ignored, But even more so, we also get empowered by looking at the successes that we've had. And certainly you're bringing up some of them here today, Betsy. Any last words of wisdom for hope that you want to pass on to the Spirit in Action listeners? Uh, I just happened to be reading a little booklet this morning by Naomi Klein about Puerto Rico. And she said that she detailed the ways in which Puerto Rico, which is a colony of the United States, still, that the Puerto Ricans have been discouraged and oppressed and put down and disempowered and disenfranchised for years, centuries, really. And she said, no wonder people wind up feeling helpless. And the lesson of Hurricane Maria is that people who have been helping one another deal with Hurricane Maria don't feel helpless any longer. And she said, perhaps the best antidote to helplessness is helping each other. I thought that was real profound. 
and you've certainly been doing that part as well as the rest of it. And folks, if you are interested in getting that full list of 17 different kinds of activism, I'd be happy to forward it on to you from Betsy. We will have a link to Surge, which is showing up for racial justice. Betsy's active with Surge Minnesota, so on Facebook you'll find them at S-U-R-J dash M-N. Follow the link from NordenSpiritRadio.org. You'll get there. Also, we'll have a link to TrainingForChange.org, both places where Betsy has been making a difference in the world and helping us to do the same. So, Betsy, thanks for the decades of dedication. Thank you for helping people be rooted and grounded in their long-term social change. And thanks for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. I'm glad to have done it. My appreciation to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. I want to send you out with a little rousing music from Peter Alsop on part of today's theme. The song is Dancing at the Revolution. Dance with the energy and join me next week for Spirit in Action. Here's Peter Alsop, Dancing at the Revolution. Men and women work hand in hand, but power shifts from man to man. So they understand Theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 